Welcome to the Poets and Philosophers Podcast. I'm Abe. And I'm Sam. And we respect the great tradition. We're also brothers. All right, today we have an exciting episode on Lord of the Rings with Dr. Tom Hamilton. Um, as we think about literature and its value for the Christian journey, uh, one author that comes up is J.R.R. Tolkien, and one book that comes up is The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Today we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings and uh, the wisdom that we can gain from that. And we're we're honored to have Dr. Uh, Hamilton, both Abe and I, are a professor at Florida College. Dr. Hamilton, would you want to introduce yourself and maybe talk a little bit about your interest in Lord of the Rings? Well, first and foremost, I guess I would say I'm a Christian, and I have the privilege of teaching biblical studies uh, at Florida College. And my interest in the Lord of the Rings dates back many years. I, I seem to remember when I was much younger, um, I was a, a lover of Tolkien before it was cool or popular. Um, I, I appreciate the biblical worldview that uh, the book uh, seems to echo without being overly or overtly allegorical, uh, like, uh, say, the Chronicles of Narnia or uh, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, something like that. Uh, and I've always liked uh, the fantasy genre kind of thing, and uh, and I've always preferred reading over, you know, watching movies or anything like that. So it seems to kind of dovetail perfectly with most of the interests that I have. Great. So you say that you prefer Tolkien's. You said it his uh, implicit, or. I guess Narnia is much more allegorical. You want to maybe explain that a little bit more? Well, I would say more overtly so. I, overtly. I wouldn't put the Chronicles of Narnia in the same category as Pilgrim's Progress in terms of allegory, but the kind of transparent uh, you know, fact that Aslan represents Christ, I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. I, I don't know that you'd look in the Lord of the Rings and say, ah, oh, that's you know, Aragorn or... Frodo or Gandalf, because you could argue all three of those have features that are similar to uh, some aspect of Jesus Christ. But uh, again, no, no one like Aslan, you know, that kind of thing. So that, that's is what comes to my mind. I, I think Tolkien was interested in it, conveying biblical uh, principles and themes, uh, but again, without being overtly uh, allegorical. That's the term I'm going to stick with. Great. And I think for two episodes ago, we, we talked to a, a buddy of mine, Landon Lufkin, and we talked about Owen Barfield. Have you read any of Owen Barfield? No, and I have not. He, he was one of the Inklings, and um, he was the person that C.S. Lewis says that helped him out of his dogmatic slumber because Owen Barfield understood like the poetic imagination and a lot of myths that there's truth in those. And um, anyways, Barfield helped through his book, Poetic Diction, Barfield helped Lewis think about um, that there is truth in story or there's truth in myth. And um, I think Landon, I think he made an argument for both that there's not as much of a difference between Tolkien and Lewis. Abe, is that what Landon was arguing? Yeah, he said that 
C.S. Lewis didn't use allegory in the sense that like um, uh, John Bunyan would have done with the Pilgrim's Progress. That it was, it's that, yes, Aslan, you know, is probably a real, almost a dead giveaway. It's like representing Christ himself. But he says that a lot of the things that people would point back to to say, oh, this was like this thing in the Gospels, or this was like this part of Christianity. He said that those things were, he didn't put them there on purpose. They just kind of happened there himself, which I thought was pretty interesting because there's definitely portions of the Chronicles of Narnia that just seem like he's just almost like rewriting the Gospels in a different way. Like the fact that it's the two young girls who go uh, and meet and find out that Aslan has been uh, resurrected after being on the stone table. Like all that stuff, you're just like, uh, I think, uh, I think, I think you're 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 playing the gospel story here and there, or even just uh, what's that little boy's name? You is it Eustace, who uh, who's comes from a dragon back into a little boy via Aslan taking him taking it apart like that's clearly like some sort of regeneration happening there the new birth so uh yeah i i do want to explore what he meant by that a little bit more in that last episode but i i still do see uh tolkien as a much more mature writing style when it comes to blending in those christian themes than c.s lewis and but c.s lewis it seems like they're writing for different audiences so Right, I think that's true. Uh, maturity level would be, you know, one of those. I mean, The Hobbit is a little bit different than The Lord of the Rings, obviously, and part of that has to do with the what age a reader you're targeting. Um, and I, I think you know you always get in this chicken and egg question: uh, how deeply someone has imbibed biblical principles and themes so much that he might unwittingly or subconsciously, you know, weave these into a story he's telling without realizing it. Uh, so the, the question of intentionality is one we may not always be able to answer. Uh, but I could see that happening uh, very easily. Um, you know, you, you hold to some value that's so deeply treasured. It's just like when, when you get old, you, you tell the same stories over and over again. And, uh, well, it's not because you just don't remember telling that story to the same people, but it's just so important to you and you can't help it. And as people explore the background or the source of those stories, uh, you begin to realize the other things that have influenced you so deeply. Um, so I, I would like to think some of my sermons sound a little biblical, you know, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, so... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very good. I it, I struggle because I it definitely does. There's a, there's a distinct difference between Lewis's Narnia and Lord of the Rings, and when when Barfield interprets Tolkien and Lewis's project, he actually says this. He says literature. He says Tolkien and Lewis believed that literature shouldn't be used as means of propagating a message. And I'm not sure if Barfield is right in his interpretation of Lewis's and Tolkien's project, but it's much more, I guess, subtle or, yeah, it's much more subtle than, uh, you know, a lot of, I guess, movies today. Or you think about, what are those movies like, uh, uh, Courageous? 
um, courageous or something that's just very Christian fireproof. Right. Yeah. And it's, I, I really just want to turn off the TV when I see that because I rather <laughs> just read, you know, the Bible. Um, right. But so, okay, very good. Yeah. That's what I've said for, for years. A lot of homeschool literature, I, I just can't stand it because it's bad literature. But the thing that makes it so bad typically is it's so, again, over the top moralizing. And even the Bible doesn't do that. Uh, so, I, th- I think the Bible uh, reflects the fact that y- you you convey a message much more effectively when people have to think through and figure a lot of it out for themselves. I think all liter- good literature is like that. You know, when you connect the dots for everybody and you're you're leading them along, that may be what Barnfeld meant by propagating. You know, it's a, a form of propaganda or manipulation of the reader. You know, certainly you have a message you want to convince them of, but uh, you do have to respect the reader. So let's talk about maybe this uh, myth-making or make-believe stories. Why why do you think that Christians should read these make-believe stories, such as Lord of the Rings? What what value does that have? Uh, Well, I think Tolkien himself said something to the effect that, you know, they're a mirror of ourselves— uh, when you read a book, you're holding up a mirror to look at yourself, really, ultimately. Uh, the Bible, certainly, that kind of literature. And I think anybody who sets out to write a serious story is interested in the transformation of the reader, uh, whether you're merely transforming his opinion about something or more deeply transforming his character, his values. Um and it goes back to what we were saying a moment ago about truth and myth. Uh, certainly the fictional parts of the story, uh, like if it's a Harry Potter story and there's magic going on, uh, or it's uh, some mythological story drawn from you know Mesopotamia or uh, Norse mythology or something like that. The fiction part of it clearly is fiction, the, the details, but all of that's just window dressing. Uh, the truth you're really looking for is in the character. Uh, how true to life uh, are the people, their character, their actions, uh, the cause and effect relationships that take place uh, between the characters and the story. And I think that's the thing that resonates with people. And I remember an illustration a old preacher friend of mine many years ago gave. Um, this old Harry Pickup Jr., he used to... Uh, chaperone the friends group as they traveled around the country uh, on behalf of the college. And he happened to be gone on his anniversary. And so he stopped by a store to pick out a card to mail to his wife. And uh, he was going through several and he wasn't satisfied with very many of them. He finally found one he actually thought was fitting. And as he was reading it, one of these young men about 20 years old, comes and peers over his shoulder to see what he's reading. It's making him cry, tears, you know, running down his cheeks. And, and the guy looks at the card. He goes, oh, it's a sentimental hogwash. And uh, Brother brother Pickup said, you know, I, I didn't hold that against the young man. You know, all he saw were words on a card. And I was looking at the, the woman that was behind those words. 
And, and I think that's true of any good literature that really embraces us and pulls us in. It's more than the words on the page. What we're really seeing, uh, you know, if you read a story of courage, you know, you're really thinking about what would I do in that situation? Would I have the courage to push through difficult circumstances? Um, you know, it's really to me no different than if a preacher got up on Sunday morning and exegeted a passage of scripture and then said, now we need to apply this. I would like for you to imagine what this would look like in a variety of situations. And again, those situations haven't happened yet. They're fictional in that sense. But if we're making correct application of the biblical principle, they should be true. And, and there's value in that imaginary process. You know, we're holding a mirror up to ourselves. The preacher's forcing us to say, now, you know, what would this look like in this situation? And I think there's great value in that. And so good stories that celebrate the kind of values that we ought to be celebrating uh, will help us, uh, you know, to that end. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to drop this out for a second. I'm just thinking about that. Um, the fact that there's, so when Harry Pickup Jr., right? When Harry Pickup Jr. is looking at these words, he's seeing the woman behind the words. And as we read Lord of the Rings, what do we see behind the words? Is it, uh, I guess, various, uh, I guess reality is at various uh, times of your life where um, I don't know, I'm just thinking like Edmund Burke talks about your moral imagination that we need to have a moral imagination. We need to be able to see the way humans are supposed to act, and stories can help us act in those ways. Um, and uh, I'm just thinking through, like, what 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 do we see behind the words of Tolkien in Lord of the Rings? Right. Well, I think one of the interesting things about reading is, and it's just like reading the Bible. Uh, you know, you read it ten different times, and you may get ten different things out of the same story uh, because your own circumstances, your own frame of mind, your own capacity for imagination changes from time to time. And so I can see, for example, I know there have been times when I've read The Lord of the Rings and I've thought about specific people I have known that were called upon uh, to make the ultimate sacrifice, for example, in battle. And they laid down their life and, and um, you know, you, you think there's a real example of the kind of courage that, you know, Tolkien's talking about, for example, uh, on another occasion, it might be that prospective question of uh, if, you know, say, God forbid, society so changed that, you know, it's illegal to be a Christian. You can't speak your mind. You can't preach uh, the truth of the, of the Bible as you uh, believe is right. And you're going to be persecuted for it. Um, and you see that happening in some places in the world even now. Uh, well, what would I do in a situation like that? You know, and that's the that's the, the value of imagination because I haven't been called upon to lay down my life for Jesus. I haven't really been persecuted that much in my life. I mean, what little trouble I've had in life is 
trivial and insignificant compared to many others. Uh, so the only real way I can do that is imagine a circumstance in which that might happen. And I think there's value in that because unless you give thought to that and you make a decision ahead of time, the, the likelihood you're going to have the, the strength of courage and resolve to get through that difficulty at the moment, that's going to be extremely difficult. Uh, but if you've, if you've reasoned through this and you've concluded, you know, this is what is right, this is what's most important, uh, because, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. Is, you know, we often hear that as, as a definition. It's not the absence of fear. That's true. But what is it then? Well, it's, it's the fact that there's something greater than our fear. There's something more important to us than our fear or avoiding what we fear. And for the Christian, that's what is right. It is the will of God. And if I have determined in my mind, this is what is absolutely right, uh, then, you know, I'll, I'll pay whatever price. I'll endure whatever circumstance to, to see that through to the end. And that's where my my story might be different than Lord of the Rings because I don't have a gold ring. I'm trying to get to the fires of Mount Doom. And I might think, well, that's just silly because <laughs> it's not even real. Um, but there is some value out there that's the most important value of all that I must be willing to sacrifice everything for. And again, I can only imagine that because in my intellectual mind, I know what that value is as scripture reveals it, but I don't know what the difficulty or the challenge is going to be yet that I'm going to face. Yeah. These stories help us, I guess, think what could the world be like and how should we act? And every time we read a story, it is a mirror and we can like read, um, we can think through how we are supposed to act. So I guess all stories have a benefit like that. Um, specifically with Lord of the Rings, though, Dr. Hamilton, I've, I've heard that you read this once a year. Um, do you read it once a year? And if so, like what brings you back to Lord of the Rings? Well, I'm going to blame COVID as many of us do for many things. You would think maybe during the year of COVID, I'd had more time to uh, you know get through it twice or something, but um, it, it's just been extremely hectic year. So I, I know it's not strictly been on an annual basis. So, uh, but I've sometimes missed the anniversary of my marriage to my wife, so uh, I can't be held too close to account on that. But I, I do try to come back to. I, I like my kids to hear it, uh, you know, constantly. So we do have it on an audio. Although I do think there's value to actually reading it, you know, off the page. Uh, but as a family, that's what we do try to do once a year. And uh, uh, again, the, the, you know, the principles uh, that are embedded in the story are timeless. Um, I think one of the things, you know, talk about a, the imagination and a mirror of ourself. You know, another thing that we do when we're reading is we're contemplating, you know, what might have been. You know, how might things have turned out differently had, you know, Boromir not succumbed to the lure of the ring or, you know, had Gandalf <laughs> succumbed or Galadriel or, you know, all these other variables, which now you're writing another story, <laughs> an alternate story 
in your mind as you work through that. And it's helping you to process those same principles uh, so you can have positive examples. Uh, of course, Tolkien has given us positive and negative examples. Uh, but in your contemplating what might have been, some of the positives could become negatives. Some of the negatives could have been positives. Um, and so I just find that more than any other book, uh, The Lord of the Rings it just seems so biblical um, without that you know, being overly moralizing or kind of in your face. And in that, it seems very real to me. The characters are real, even though the the window dressing of the story is not realistic. I mean, I, I don't believe in magic and, you know, the powerful rings and things like that. But that's just, again, the the convention of the story itself, the, the, the characters and the relationships uh, seem more alive to me than most any other characters I've encountered in literature uh, seem more real to me even than actual people I've encountered in real life sometimes because, you know, some people are pretty lifeless. Uh, they, they need a good author to help them out. Present company excluded, of course. Oh, great. Yes, thank you. <laughs> no, we could be NPCs. We just don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> so in these stories, I guess, like, let's think about the wisdom in Lord of the Rings. As you're listening to this with your family on a road or if you're reading it to them, what what can you think of like distinct times, points in Lord of the Rings that just jump out at you and that you think every... American, you know, everyone should be, you know, should, should read this and should understand this principle or, or piece of wisdom. Like what are those? Right. Man, there, there, there are so many, I, I have this bad habit. If uh, we ever watch a movie together as a family, I'm hitting the pause button and, you know, <laughs> I, I provide the overly moralizing part of it that does. Uh, I don't uh, want it in the movie <laughs> so that, uh, you know, be, my kids are sure not to miss an important point, you know. Uh, yeah, like our dad. Our dad does the same exact <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, um, and, and that's just as the occasion, you know, warrants uh, to point out uh, a positive decision that somebody makes or, uh, can you imagine how difficult that might have been or how easy it might have been for them to rationalize a different outcome? Uh, those are the specific kind of things that arise. But uh, there's also bigger ones that I, I wouldn't pause, you know, a movie or uh, uh, audio recording of The Lord of the Rings to make this point. But it's the kind of thing you could discuss uh, with your family uh, kind of big picture, but one of the things I do appreciate that I think comes through uh, in the Lord of the Rings is, you know, in in religion, there's a there are kind of two extremes. You have those people that think everything's been determined, and we're all NPCs, <laughs> you know, basically. That's an overly simplistic kind of characterization, but that's that's the uh, kind of the man in the pew perception of a determinism that is so rigid and fixed that nothing he does matters. And on the other extreme, of course, you know, we've all got to pull ourselves up our own bootstraps and we're all on our own. 
uh, ultimately, and whether we're going to make it to heaven depends on whether we're good enough. And I think there's a balance between those two extremes. Uh, you, you see in the Lord of the Rings that, you know, what the characters do matters, and it calls for sacrifice and investment of uh, their effort to accomplish the goal. But at the same time, all of that is just part of a, a bigger spiritual battle that's going on with other forces that are at work. Um, and, and both are necessary. So uh, I, I see that kind of divine respect for the individual choice that I find in Scripture um, you know, somewhat reflected in a, a, a story on a grand scale like The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I'll say uh, one of the things that I've, because I've been reading them, and I actually have not read them um, through yet, but as I've been reading the first the first book, um, I uh, there's a scene wherever they are finally being rescued by uh, Tom Bombadil for the first time and for the second time. For the first time, um, you know, he just has him over and he sets out this great meal and just gives him a lot of hospitality. And I, I know that like Tom Bombadil is kind of an interesting character where people are kind of like, what do we do with this guy? This is kind of a weird, this is such a weird scene. But I, when I read it, I, uh, I appreciated his, uh, his hospitality and just that move towards them gave them that courage to just keep on going. And I think for us as Christians, we or have a desire and we must be hospitable to others. And we don't know where people are at all the time as far as where their walk is in life. But if we can extend that sort of hospitality, even if it's such a small thing, uh, that can just do wonders for people and encourage them and um, just help them out in their life. That We just don't think of those things, but it's like that small move of uh, Bombadil to invite them over and have a big meal is... Uh, it's like a, I think it's a really beautiful and touching scene for them as well. Um, I think, too, on top of that, um, Sam as a character is uh, he's a very uh, you just you can't help but like love that character of Sam as he is just this loyal person who's loyal through and through. And he's not even the brightest character in the story. I mean, he's pretty, you know, all the hobbits are kind of they don't really understand much of anything. They're kind of learning as they go, which helps us as readers of the story. Um, so they're kind of learning as they go. But what makes Sam also just really shine bright as a character is that he is just unyieldingly loyal to the cause. And I think we all want a friend like Sam. Um, but I think more importantly, like we should develop our own friendships to be like Sam for other people. Um, those were the two things as far as like wisdom that I found in the stories that I've just... I, when you said they're more real than other people, and I think in some sense they're they're more real than I am, and I appreciate them so much. And I think reading these stories helps you kind of rise to that occasion of, hey, um, this is something you can do, and here's how it happens, and and have at it. Yeah, I certainly think that's probably one of the things Tolkien had in mind with a character like Sam. You know, comes from a very rustic background, and especially given, you know, aristocratic British society where a lot of your status derives from, you know, who you were born to and where you fit in the, you know, pecking order. 
um, you know, that that a person of a, a very lowly background could could rise way above their station, so to speak. Uh, you know, there, there is something inspiring about that and that we ought to be able to see, um, you know, sometimes easier to see character in other people than in ourselves. Um, and so by, by looking at someone like Sam, it's like you say, you know, we'd all love to have a friend like Sam, but the importance to take that a step further, should we be a, that kind of friend to other people becomes the obvious, you know, uh, lesson that we ought to learn from that. You know, certainly I think one of the grand principles in the story that surely echoes uh, Tolkien's, you know, Christian background is this idea that, uh, you know, we're going to destroy the ring and it won't even enter into the mind of Sauron that we would think to do that. You know, it's, it's just, uh, you, you do see that biblical principle that uh, worldly power and the whole worldly philosophy is so enamored of itself, there are some things it cannot even begin to fathom. And it cannot fathom the true character of God. And uh, so the, you, the message of the cross, of a, a crucified Christ, uh, uh, something that's utterly, from a world's perspective, powerless and shameful and, you know, uh, a total defeat, uh, but it is, in fact, the victory and the glory and, and true life. And, and I think that's, the, you know, one of the grand lessons there in the, the Lord of the Rings. Um, so, I, you know, I always point that out to the kids whenever we hit that part of it. You know, the, you know, the, the idea that we won't use the ring. Yeah, of course, we'd use it for good, you know, to, to destroy the power of the ring. But no, we, we won't do that even. For me, I don't know why, I just... I wonder why this kind of indirect communication is so powerful and why is it that, you know, Abe or, you know, and Dr. Hamilton, you can't read a self-help book that's a direct discourse that is saying, be a loyal friend, but it's at the time where you read it in a story and it hits you and surely Tolkien has it in mind that he wants to display Sam as a character that is loyal, that teaches the readers, but just why is it that this kind of indirect communication is so powerful in contact, in contrast to just direct communication? Right. Well, I've, I've given a lot of thought to this because, um, you know, I teach a lot of textual courses on the Bible and certainly the most important parts of the Bible and a huge percentage of the Bible is narrative. They're just stories. And I ask my students, why is that? And the answer that I want them to come to the realization is that the story that the Bible is ultimately telling us is the story of God revealing to us the character of God. And the best way to communicate character is through story. And so if, you know, you got a boy and a girl that are dating and they want to get to know one another. They, they tell stories about themselves, about their childhood. And the stories that we choose to tell about ourselves reveal something about, you know, the things we remember, the things that have been formative, the values that we hold. And in subtle ways, we are revealing to the other person who we really are and what we're about. 
And that is much more effective than if I sit there saying, well, I'm five foot 10, you know, uh, I have blonde hair and blue eyes and I, my favorite color is green and all these factual kind of things you could probably put on a driver's license. Uh, and, and so I, I think about my relationship with my wife and uh, let's so say you had never met her, you know nothing about her. And my option on the one hand is to give you a list of those kind of attributes. Here's how tall she is. Here's how much she weighs. Here's how old she is and so on. And then if I were to say to you, she's like a spring day in the middle of winter. Well, in a factual sense, I've really told you nothing. But that phrase probably comes much closer to revealing to you how I feel about her than the driver's license information I listed. Uh, And I think that's the key here. That's why poetry uh, or poetic type of literature is so powerful because there's something about communication that's more like a, uh, a manual about how to assemble a swing set, you know, put tab A and slot B. You know, that's the kind of communication that's intended to be. It's, it's got to be as clear as possible so people don't make mistakes and so on. Everything's black and white, spelled out. But if you try to approach life that way or describe a relationship that way, it fails because there will always be a mis- mysterious aspect to that relationship. Uh, and especially if you're trying to describe an infinite being like God, there's way more about God we don't know than what we do. Um, and so it's poetry that preserves the mystery of it somewhat. And so instead of giving the appearance that we're telling you everything you need to know about courage, what we're saying is there is such a thing as courage. We can know a couple of things about it that I can tell you in my self-help book, but there's a whole lot to it that's a mystery. And, and so when you read stories of people of courage, you can, you can see some of the highlights and what that looks like in real life. But there's also a lot of stuff beneath the surface that you'll never know for sure or be able to put your finger on exactly. And I think good literature can preserve the mystery while also communicating something of the you know, point that it's trying to convey. And certainly the Bible is like that. And, uh, and again, I think about my relationship with my wife. Uh, I've been married for almost 38 years and we can finish each other's sentences and someone will make a comment and both of us will immediately think of a shared story that we have from years ago. And yet, as, as much as I can predict her thinking and what she's going to say or how she'll feel on a particular subject, she is still entirely capable of surprising me because there's a mystery. I, I can never put her in a box and got her all figured out. And that's just the way people are. And, and so I think the preservation of that mystery, I, mean, I, I wrestled with this when I was much younger reading the Bible because, you know, I'd read the Psalms, for example, and it'd be like, man, I wish these guys would just come out and say what they mean. You know, put it in black and white terms, you know, explain it to me. And yet, uh, because they don't explain it directly, that's actually a much more effective way of preserving that mysterious aspect that is there. I'm also reminded of Jesus in the boat with the disciples in Matthew chapter 16. He says, you know, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And of course, he means their teaching, 
And the disciples eventually figure that out. But part of me is like, well, Jesus, if you meant teaching, I would think the word teaching would have been a lot clearer and less confusing. And yet it wouldn't have been because it forces the disciples to think through that. And it isn't just, here's a fact, you need to watch out for the teaching. There's all much more to it than that, that he can convey by being a little bit more mysterious about it. So that's that, you know, necessity of good narrative, good mythology, uh, good poetry, uh, that I think it's communicating to us those aspects of life that are not that quantifiable. And relationships certainly fall in that category. They're not quantifiable. Courage is not quantifiable. You're never going to be able to distill, you know, bravery in a scientific lab and say, here it is, you know, here's the secret to it. Uh, Every time we read a story of bravery, we get closer to understanding on a deeper level of what that really means. Yeah. So I guess indirect communication preserves the mystery and that makes us as readers think through, um, I guess, these different qualities. And in a way, you're kind of cut off guard and then you start seeing it, um, seeing it. And it's kind of a mirror and you can start thinking through because like if you're going to directly tell someone you need to be, have more courage, um, your defense may be up, I would suspect. But if you can ch- show it to them in a story, they start thinking, oh, what does this? courage look like this is what courage looks like you know what i don't look like that and it, it might be yeah more convicting i don't i, I gotta think about that a lot more with yeah. preserving the mystery or, or, yeah or sometimes it's a matter of just going in where they are out the other you know okay i got that okay be brave okay check it off but we really haven't even remotely understood what that means and and there has to be some kind of time investment and reflection over this uh, to get us where we need to be. You know, you're not going to read a book like the Bible. So, well, I've read it. I understand it. You're not going to be able to read a book like the Lord of the Rings, you know, in the same way. Uh, Hopefully I've learned something more, but there's so much more to learn. Uh, That's why I keep coming back to it uh, to see if there's other things that'll show me about myself. Abe, what is your thoughts on this I guess, indirect communication, preserving the mystery. Yeah. Well, I'm about to teach a class on uh, Genesis here next quarter, and I've been just thinking through about the uh, the creation story of Genesis 1 and just how God doesn't do it, you know, poof, and everything existed and as it was. But he like tells the story of how things came to be and wants to show us and teach us like, through that. So I think even God, when he explains things to us, he does not give us the scientific information of things, but he tells, like, he embeds it all within a story. Like the way he explains sin to Cain for the first time. It's not, well, sin is the absence of goodness or whatever, you know, uh, uh, scientific. He says, no, sin is like this animal that wants to, like, devour you, but you have to master it. Uh, And for some reason, and I think because we live in stories, um, because, you know, we live a life, uh, those things make more sense to us. I also think about, you know, trying to feed a baby or a kid food. You know, you could list off maybe all the information of what this food is and say, here, eat it. Or you could say, well, broccolis are like little trees. And when you eat them, you're like this big giant eating trees. And like, yeah. Or, you know, you do the whole airplane thing to feed them. Like for some reason, just trying to spoon feed a kid sometimes food, they, just, they don't want it. But as soon as you start to play around and build a story or a narrative around, hey, there's some tension here, eat it, you know, they want to eat it then. 
And uh, that's something deep within us that uh, is helpful, especially with teaching. Like if you can be, well, we talk about this, about Socrates and Jesus, how they used to tease when they teach. Like they would say things, they would walk away, be like, hey, 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 hey hold on a second. You know, uh, tell me more about this. And it's just a, it's just a powerful way of, of teaching. I think stories do that. They don't hit you over the head. And when they do, you almost feel like violated. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's a great analogy because, uh, you know, reading is how we feed the mind. Um, and, you know, good stories force us to ask questions, you know, like the Genesis account you were talking about. Why did God choose to take time to create anything? I mean, one thing that becomes clear from the story the way it's presented is it wasn't just all instantaneously materialized out of nothing. But the story never pauses to say, and boys and girls, the reason that God chose to do this over time was to make this point. But you can't help but ask that question. And is there a biblical answer you know, to that question? Is there a, a, a bigger truth that is there that was not stated explicitly? And I think there is. And it, it's those kind of questions the text forces you to ask, you know, um, so yeah, let's think about the hero as you think through <clears throat> our attention is normally going to be on the hero. And let's say with Lord of the Rings, what, Dr. Hamilton, what draws you to Frodo or are you drawn to Frodo? How, what, what aspects of him do you find admirable? Well, uh, certainly he's, uh, you know, humble. He's, he's not a full of himself kind of hero, which during some periods of time and in some cultures that's would kind of be expected uh, that a hero is more the realization of of the power of self and the greatness of self uh, and certainly that's not a kind of biblical hero and not a kind of hero that uh, Tolkien would be interested in modeling but in a more you know Christian worldview hero a uh, a, a person who has greatness within them or can develop greatness. Uh, but part of that greatness is by not becoming uh, arrogant or self-absorbed. Um, he certainly is, uh, exhibits resilience and courage. Uh, you know, I'd call him a very self-aware hobbit <laughs> of what needs to be done. Uh, he, he will do what he can to see it through, to get it done. So it's not this, oh, I can't do nothing. I'm just a lowly hobbit. Uh, woe is me. And use that as an excuse to do nothing. Uh, but neither is it put himself forward. And, you know, I, I'm your man, you know. Why are you people even debating this question? You know, give it to me. I'll take care of it. Um, then it gets back to that question about fear. I mean, I'm sure he's terrified throughout the book. I mean, I'd be horrified and curled up in a corner in a fetal position. But again, there is this greater thing that drives him on. And, you know, we talked about Sam's loyalty. Well, he's he's got that same kind of loyalty to the cause or to the, the principle here of what needs to be done. Uh, now, in the end, he, you know, can't quite carry, carry it through to the end. And I think that's Tolkien's kind of statement about, sin and just how incapable man is on his own to deal with that. But what I do think about the hero of the story, I, 
I really draw more to Sam as the hero, even more so than Frodo, because Frodo wouldn't have gotten as far as he did without Sam. Um, and certainly, as some have suggested, that the hero of the story is the person that you, um, you know, can most relate to in terms of, you know, what character has been transformed the most in a way that the reader relates to, and he's supposed to be transformed along with this person. And I think in the stories that would be Sam, that he, he does have these lowly beginnings, not much is expected of him. And again, you have this question that comes up, how much of his greatness that he attains did he develop along the way? And how much of that did he actually have within him all along that was kind of latent and buried? And I think both are true. We have within each one of us greatness that's uh, waiting to be awakened, but innately it's not going to be everything it should be without nurturing and development. And so, you know, as I read the book, I kind of see myself you know, following that same process of, of uh, transformation uh, or like to envision myself at least that way. Um, but a lot of the same kind of qualities and, and traits. And, and you might really say maybe it's the friendship between Frodo and Sam or that loyalty, that that relationship ultimately that it's the real, you know, hero, maybe not one person, but, you know, be kind of like a marriage is not supposed to be the husband or the wife, but the relationship itself that is the new entity, the one flesh uh, that presses on. That's a great point that the hero could be the relationship between them. And I'm sure that's probably worthy of a paper. Um, yeah. <laughs> it really is. That's, uh, that's a awesome I probably saw that on a bumper sticker somewhere or something. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know where that came from. I didn't, I don't recall reading that anywhere, but who knows? That's, you know, Someone will do a paper on that and say, oh, Hamilton was influenced by, you know, whoever yeah. wrote that 50 years before I was born. Who knows? So um, so you were saying that, like, yeah, Frodo is distinct from, I guess, the previous ages that if you were a hero, you'd be self-congratulatory, very self-confident. Um, a few episodes back, me and Abe looked at, or was it last episode? I think it was maybe. Well, yeah, probably last episode. No, yeah, last ep two episodes ago. Um, thinking about Beowulf. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, about like Beowulf, he is. He is. You know, he's the guy who fights so many monsters and swims for five days and um, <clears throat> racing different monsters. When he handles a sword, he's gonna break it. So he fights these beasts with his bare arms and. And Tolkien was a, you know, uh, Beowulf scholar. And it's so distinct from when you see Lord of the Rings. How had, how do you think that heroism has been changed through the ages? And also maybe today, like what do you think there's heroes today and how is heroism looked at today? Well, I'm certainly no hero expert, but, uh, uh, and I haven't read Beowulf uh, recently. Uh, I do know we, what the dragon kills him in the end. Basically, I mean, he kills the dragon, but he you know suffers the fatal injury or something. Um, and I understand Tolkien had 
done his own translation of Beowulf around the same time that he wrote. So I, I can't imagine that he wouldn't have been influenced by some of the imagery and the tropes and, and you know things that come up in literature. Uh, and I wouldn't say Beowulf is entirely selfish uh, because a person's willing to go to battle and you know fight on behalf of other people uh, that'll benefit from that. But certainly more self-absorbed in terms of which his heroism is all about his mighty deeds and great strength and, you know, those kind of things. And that fit the age. Um, you know, one kind of does a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, form criticism from a biblical perspective, you know, to get behind the text and what can we learn about this community of people that liked the story and preserved it? You know, why did they need that story? And what it was certainly advocating those kind of values that would, were perceived as uh, necessary for the survival of the, the culture. And certainly Tolkien would come to, to that and offer up the Lord of the Rings as something of a Christian critique of, you know, pagan heroism or, you know, a lot of even what passes for modern uh, heroism in which our interest in being a hero is, I want to be somebody and promote ourselves. Um, and you see that in the kind of humble beginnings uh, of these people. And even after all they've gone through, they're still pretty humble. Uh, you know, the end of the story is just striking to me that, you know, Sam's just back home and living his life. And and the fact that nobody in the Shire really uh, knows or can appreciate what he's done for them. And he's not printing up cards and going around trumpeting, you know, hey, don't you realize what I've done for you? Uh, but that's a very Christ-like uh, type of humility, you know. I think in today's age, you know, we can't have any heroes that aren't themselves just terribly flawed. And it's almost as if the message is no one can be a true hero. Uh, you know, this this idea of having heroes is probably uh, part of our problem and needs to be eradicated. And so we're going to show that everybody's got an Achilles heel, everybody's you know, when you strip off the, you know, they were just lucky. They were in the place at that time. Had that been somebody else, they would have done the same thing. Things would have turned out the same way. Of course, we know that's not true, but um, that's that's going to be the narrative that some people want to drive, that uh, we're all basically the same and, uh, you know, we've all got our problems and, and we shouldn't be celebrating, you know, Again, we're we're in an age where we're tearing down statues of people because of some perceived failure in their life. As if, you know, if you buy into that, we should be putting statues of Jesus up everywhere because he's the only perfect person there ever was. Um, if you're never going to put a mural up or a statue up or a painting or something of people that have flaws, then you know it's not going to have any statues. Um, but. But we know people are inconsistent about that because, you know, everybody has, you know, their agenda. Everybody has their values they're trying to push. And so it really sounds to be more like not that we aren't interested in heroes, but we don't want those heroes or we don't believe in those values anymore. We've got to supplant them by some other value system. 
And I don't know if people even know what that is. It may be just more destructive, like, well, I don't like the world that we have. And so I just assume everything that's contributed to that world is evil. And so let's just throw out everything and start over, you know, from scratch. You know, that's certainly what social Marxism is all about. Uh, Destroy everything. You know, everything's corrupted. Everything's contaminated. Everything must be destroyed. And so everything that you think is a value that should be celebrated, no, that's part of the root problem. But I don't think anyone has any clue what values to put in its place. Yeah, when I feel like with heroes, someone to emulate, it's light. And when light comes into a dark world, the world doesn't like it. And I don't think people want to be contrasted with heroes, even though they may think that those heroes embody something bad i think generally they still feel judged by it and they might try to impute i guess vices to those heroes so let's i guess drag them down i yeah i guess maybe we you can't have heroes today um because i think in a relative culture i'm not sure if you could have heroes because the whole idea of a hero is something to emulate and follow right you don't want to do, you know, that. as long as it's your own truth. Well, everybody's their own hero then, you know, I don't know how that gets us anywhere, you know? Yeah. I, w- I would say that they are still trying to do heroes. I mean, obviously we can't ignore Marvel and the success that Marvel has had over the years. Although that's really starting to break down and uh, really not do so well. But I think on top of that as well, um, the heroes that are done, like for the people, at least like two of them come to mind, um, which is Captain Marvel and then uh, Ray from Star Wars. And both of these characters are seen to be as heroes and they are powerful. Um, but like the, 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 the thing that they try to have to overcome is the fact that they are just that powerful. They don't realize they're that powerful. Nobody else has realized that they're powerful. So if they would just see themselves as powerful then they that's how they overcome like that's their arc is just to realize that they're so powerful just to begin with and it's a very flat story um typically they call these mary sues where they hardly have any obstacles and their only obstacle is like they don't realize just how powerful they are and which is a story that's being told and it's told particularly um to women um as far as like look you can just you're already great. You don't have to overcome anything. The only thing you have to overcome is just your own self of uh, your own self-esteem. And if you just have enough self-esteem, then you could be awesome, which is a very, um, I think a very harmful story to tell people because it leaves out that transformation of character and that overcoming of obstacles bigger than just self-esteem and such um, as well. But I think they still are. We still are trying to tell stories, but I think they are very truncated. They're very um, simplistic, and uh, they, in some sense, some of them just try to deconstruct what the hero is, just to show that he's really not as great as we think he is, and he's got his own problems. And I think Marvel really developed that, whereas like DC was more so on the opposite spectrum of things as well. Um, And I will say, too, though, on top of what we were talking about, as far as the difference between someone like Beowulf and Frodo, um, there is uh, the idea in the ancient world, at least, of 
that little character who overcomes the obstacles like Frodo does. And I think the term is the Paneros, which is, a you know, the Greek term there, which so like Tregeus from the play Peace, you know, he's just this farmer. He's a middle-aged farmer. And what makes him overcome to wake up Peace to bring an end to the to the wars? Uh, he He's like, he's just this character who just believes that he can do this. He, somebody has got to do this. And if not me, and he, he wants to find some sort of steed to go up to the Olympus to wake up peace. And so the only thing you can find is this dung beetle and he calls it his Pegasus. Um, so there's a sense in which there is that old type of storytelling where it is that little person who does overcome. Um, but that Beowulf, it's also a very predominant theme of storytelling where it's like this, uh, this larger than life figure who, you know, can't be, you know, the Hercules of the storytelling, I guess you could say. So it is uh, interesting to see the different types of heroes that are told about when it comes to storytelling. And I think, um, I think we can see Tolkien really use a lot of that kind of stuff whenever he's telling his stories. He's got these really deep characters to him. So we talked about having uh, Tolkien having this influence or Catholicism, Tolkien's Catholicism having this influence on Tolkien and his belief in God permeates Lord of the Rings. Dr. Hamilton, how how does Tolkien's belief in God and his Catholicism influence um, Lord of the Rings? Uh, well, you know, I would probably distinguish two things. You know, you have Orthodox Christianity, which there's going to be an awful lot of overlap with aspects of Catholicism. Um, and you see that throughout the book in terms of the ring, it seems, represents, if I had to pick something, you know, would give it an allegorical representation of the power of sin, uh, the depravity of man, uh, you know, a force that corrupts everything man touches. Uh, and in the end, we're, we're powerless to just of our own innate goodness to, to deal with it. Um, I certainly see that throughout the entire story. Um, this kind of supernatural divine sphere that is at work behind the appearance of things. So you have what's going on on middle earth and, you know, the physical realm, that battle is just one aspect of a much bigger battle that's happening. Um, that I would certainly see as a biblical, uh, you know, Christian uh, worldview. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the, you know, different characters that have some Christ-like kind of dimensions to them, like, uh, uh, you know, Frodo is the one that bears the ring, is like Christ bears the uh, power of sin to destroy it. Um, you know, Gandalf is a kind of died and resurrected character who's transfigured, <laughs> even the brilliant whiteness that can't be beheld directly. Um Aragorn, even the, the king who returns to his throne. And uh, there's even that kind of harrowing of hell doctrine that may be worked into that. That's not a, as widely accepted in Christianity, but it's a very uh, distinct in Anglican uh, theology and uh, some Catholic theology. It's in some of the creeds. Uh, but the idea he goes to the realm of the dead and leads them out, you know, that kind of thing. So. Um, I, 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 
suspect some of that was informed by his, you know, biblical Christian worldview. Um, now, specifically being a Catholic, uh, I'm intrigued by that. Uh, it, you know, uh, when you first said that, it made me think of, uh, you know, if you want to come up with an allegorical interpretation where uh, the ring represents uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation or something. <laughs> <laughs> We start assigning uh, characters to, you know, all the people in the story or something. I, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you think about, uh, say, the, the the sacrament, you know, and the role that uh, the Eucharist has, uh, I, I guess you could see something like that in the Limbus bread of the elves. You know, it's the, the way bread or the bread of life that sustains you know, the will of people, not just the body. I, I could definitely see how someone who comes from a very uh, strong Catholic background would probably see echoes of that in, um, you know, the Lord of the Rings. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's not the kind of book when I read it, of like, oh, I'm reading a book by a Catholic, you know. So whatever influences there are of his Catholicism are, I would think, sufficiently subtle that, uh, you know, it doesn't, it's not like a person who's not a Catholic can't appreciate the story. But but uh, sure. in terms of Orthodox Christianity, it's just, uh, you know, just chock full of it. I mean, I don't know of another book that's more biblical like that without, again, going into the kind of John Bunyan, you know, allegory type of thing. Sure. And this is a, I'm just thinking about how I guess powerful this can be and how a lot of the preachers I know there is a lack, and I'm saying this even within me, there's a lack of reading stories. And I generally will read self-help or I'll read you know, biblical direct discourse. I don't read a lot of novels and stories and I, and I see that as a, as a common um, trait of a lot of preachers. And one thing I know with C.S. Lewis that it was, that helped him read critically was one, I mean, he was a good, he was big in debate, but also C.S. Lewis could think imaginatively. He could. He he read myth, and he loved reading um, myth. So, do you think there's a place for requiring? Is, do you think there's a place for requiring, um, like reading the Lord of the Rings or some other textbook in in a course or in let's say in the biblical biblical studies department at Florida College, where you you read literature to help you read closely. So when you, I guess, approach the text, you might be more sensitive. This is just a, something I've been thinking of. I know a lot of preachers always comment on C.S. Lewis. A lot of preachers, you know, respect him. And I wonder if his ability to think as he did came from his ability to read stories and literature. Uh, well, certainly we're in a culture where reading is on the decline anyway. Uh, so that's, that's problematic. Um, and even most preachers I know that 
are drawn to C.S. Lewis, they're probably more drawn to his, you know, just more just plain writing about theology, like, you know, mere Christianity or, or something. Um, I certainly see that reference a lot more than say the screw tape letters or the Chronicles of Narnia or his sci-fi trilogy. Uh, and, and yet, and I, I think it's probably because if you're looking for something pithy in a sermon to kind of proof text a point, that's a whole lot easier than say, well, let's read three chapters, you know, out of the civil chair today, uh, just as an illustration of a, some biblical principle. Um, so uh, I guess the question would be more, you know, as a discipline for uh, people who take the teaching of the Word of God seriously, should we interact more with uh, stories like that that may help us uh, better appreciate the biblical narrative or better learn how to ask the right questions of the story um, when we're even reading the Bible. Um, and maybe that there's, there's a point to that, just as the stories themselves hold up a mirror of ourselves, they're also a training ground in which we can learn how to read and appreciate stories, you know, how to read any story closely, critically, uh, asking the right questions of it. And that's certainly the most important discipline. I try to do that in my classes. I have an assignment where you know, I try to, you know, as, as much as you can lead a horse to water and force them to drink, uh, try to get them in a text like Matthew chapter 16, you know, what's what's the most important question we need to ask of this text? You know, and in some way it's going to boil down to, you know, if Jesus meant teaching, why didn't he say teaching? <laughs> you know, and, and you've got to think through that and come up with some plausible answer because your mind cannot be content just to ask the question. You know, that, that's the hunger part of it. You know, you're acknowledging your hunger pain of your mind, but now it's got to be fed. I've got to, I won't rest until I get an answer that I, that I find satisfactory. Um, again, I don't know how you're going to make preachers do that. <laughs> uh, someone needs to write a good narrative story that explains the importance of reading narrative stories. Oh, I don't Yeah, good. It's kind of like how to read a book. Well, I need a book on how to read, how to read a book, and then, you know, infinite regression from there, right? Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a very good discussion, and I am um, I am convicted about all of the – I haven't read Lord of the Rings. I've watched it, and I oh. – as well as – I know. As well as Narnia, um, I – me and Julie have been reading the very first book. And with a lot of other reading, I can't get through it, but I, I see the importance of it. And it's really helpful for me to hear uh, you talk about that. Let me ask just as a practical question for our families, like when would be Lord, when would Lord of the Rings be an appropriate age to read it? What would be an appropriate age to read it? Well, that's a good question. Um, my answer would probably be, uh, since I hold it in such high esteem and it's so biblical, uh, probably the same way you do the Bible. <laughs> so uh, at what age do you start reading the Bible to your kids? Like 14. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, 
you know, I think a home that believes in reading uh, as a shared uh, family value, you know, little kids are just going to grow up in that. That's how it is. And obviously, there's all kinds of parts of the story they're not going to get. It's way over their head, but they grow into it. And uh, so I, you know, uh, I think you could probably do it in a way that makes it so unpleasant. You could ruin reading for a child for the rest of his life, or he hates that particular book, or he hates the Bible the rest of his life because of that. But, um, but if it's a value that they see the importance of, and it bonds the family together, uh, they grow up seeing that aspect of it. It's more like, well, what am I missing? Well, I'm just a kid, you know. And as they get older, they begin to appreciate it. And I would say probably somewhere around the age of 12, where the child's faculties are able to be turned more from just absorbing facts like a sponge to being more abstract, uh, capable of dealing with abstract thought. Uh, that's probably going to be the point at which they begin to appreciate various aspects of the story. Um, so I, I, that would be about the age I would think that, you know, instead of, you know, maybe when you're listening to Lord of Rings or everybody else, you send them to bed when they're three years old or something, it's time for their bedtime anyway. But um, but certainly by the time they're, they're around that age, 10 to 12, I, I think they're capable of, uh, picking up on that and participating, being part of the, the conversation about it. But, and I, again, I find that's really true of the Bible because before that, all the Bible stories are just disjointed, unrelated kid Bible story, you know, the Manoah and the flood and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, so I would suspect Lord of the Rings would be similar, you know, just get lost in all the, you know, the weeds here. Who's Tom Bombadil and what connections that have over here? And I mean, there's so many people and things to keep track of. It would, it would be challenging for a small child, obviously. And it'd be quite intimidating. It is such a long work, uh, at least the trilogy. Yeah. So that'd be yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty intimidating. He Adrian, certainly would start out on the Hobbit as a much more on their level kind of book, you know, and if they just, you, you realize they're not really up into the Hobbit yet, then, Probably not time to douse them in Lord of the Rings, you know. So. Very good. Abe, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I like the idea of just if you're going to that be part of your family, just to do it and kind of see what happens. Like, you know, having like an age where, okay, now you can do it. Where I think you have to kind of observe, like uh, Dr. Hamilton was saying, as far as when you're reading it, are they getting it? Are they picking up on it? And also the fact that The Hobbit it's probably a good place to start because it is such a, a kid book because like, you know, he just starts to explain things for the kids for their sake, you know, now let me tell you a little bit about hobbits and how they live and their feet, you know? Uh, so it's a very kind of fun, whimsical style of writing that you don't really get in Lord of the Rings and kids are drawn to that whimsical. I mean, Dr. Seuss is very whimsical and popular for that reason. So I think uh, osmosis is probably what you're going for first. You're not going to like, give them a study guide on the first few chapters right. or anything that's there will be a quiz following the yeah. reading yeah even at the so. beginning of this uh you were saying that you even like listen to this in the car and i think that'd be perfect for i think me and julie um 
And like right now, there's a few times we we've listened to uh, Orthodoxy by Chesterton or Life Together by Bonhoeffer. And I'm sure May in the back, which I mean, she's almost three, so she's not going to pick up much anyways. But I, I, there's going to be a point in time where it's not just going to be me and Julie, it's going to be all of us. And I think Lord of the Rings would be a great listen for, for all of us. And um, also at nighttime when we do read together, uh, I think if we're just a community, if we're a family who enjoys reading and it's important to us, then uh, it, this is a great book to surface around, you know, 10, 12. So it's been a great discussion. I, uh, I very much appreciate it. You have something else, Dr. Hamilton? Oh, I just uh, want to say how much I appreciate you two guys. You have uh, made an old professor proud of uh, how you've gone on with your life and uh, the things you're doing and uh, commend you for that. And uh, so I've not yet listened to one of your podcasts, but uh, they've been filtered to me through Brian. So uh, anyway, so uh, I know a little bit about what y'all been up to. So keep well, up the good work. Thank, thank you for taking the time off of your summer to, uh, to talk with us about this topic. So until next time, um, we hope that you all enjoy your readings and uh, we look forward to talking to you in the next podcast.